three-man junta has been named to rule the Dominican Republic as a rebel movement collapses. It was an attempt to reinstate exile president Juan Bosch, and U.S. Marines were ordered into the country to protect American lives. The Leathernecks were airlifted to the capital of Santo Domingo, where they killed two snipers who attacked the U.S. Embassy. President Johnson ordered the troop movement when it appeared doubtful that a stable government could be established immediately. The rebels claimed rule of the country, but their regime collapsed when neutral naval and army units joined government forces led by General Vesson Vesson. He was the leader of the rebellion in 1963 that ousted President Bosch on charges that he was pro-Castro. Welcome to episode 43 of American History 2. I'm Mark McClay and I'm joined, as always, by Malcolm Craig. Hello Malcolm, how goes Liverpool? Very well, thank you Mark. Hello, uh, delighted to be back recording another episode and uh, this month uh, we're going to be talking about American diplomacy towards Latin America, particularly thinking about the, t- the era of Lyndon B. Johnson and to help us do this uh, we're delighted to welcome an expert in this, uh, Dr Thomas Tunstall-Alcock from the University of Manchester. So welcome Tom and could you tell us just in a minute a brief uh, excerpt of your research? I'll, I'll do my best. Th- thanks very much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, <laughs> You're very kind, Tom. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so I'll say I, I'm a historian of US foreign relations. Um, my uh, first research project was a focus really around US Latin American relations, which is convenient for today, uh, particularly focused on LBJ's presidency and on his chief Latin American advisor, a man called Thomas Mann. Uh, which has led to much confusion in terms of research, in terms of publications, that people think I'm doing some uh, extremely left-field project about German authors and U.S. foreign relations. I'm not a U.S. diplomat. Um, so I've actually just just finished up the manuscript on that book. That is off with the publishers as of last week. Um, Congratulations. Thank you very much. Wait, it still has to come back for the copy editors, so we'll, we'll not get too excited yet, but... Um, but no, but so we are now, uh, I'm now trying to move on to, to the next project, which is something a little bit broader and thinks um, a little bit about presidential diplomacy, uh, particularly looking uh, at things like presidential entertaining, the hosting of foreign leaders, uh, potentially presidential travel. Um, I'm really interested in this idea of the kind of president as a diplomat and the impact that that has um, on both the success of their presidency and how they conduct foreign relations. Cool, perfect. Well, before we get on to, and pardon the pun, mansplaining US-Latin American relations, let's rewind uh, a wee bit. Since we're going to be focusing on the America, America's approach to Latin America, and by that, you know, we pretty much mean all countries in, pretty much all countries in Central and Southern America. Long before the 1960s, obviously, America's had various policies, and uh, most students of American history will be familiar with the, with the Monroe Doctrine, outlined by President James Monroe in the 1820s, which stated that the U.S. wouldn't tolerate further colonization by European powers like Britain or France of the American continent. And if they, did, if they tried to, the U.S. would consider it a hostile act against its sovereignty. On the other hand, the U.S. vows not to interfere in colonies that existed, particularly those held by Spain, um, which was still a force in Latin America during the 19th century. And this sort of largely holds until the 1890s. So, I mean, would, would either of you want to speak about how this relationship underwent a transformation around the turn of the 20th century and the effect it had on America's relationship sort of vis-a-vis Latin America? I'll maybe come to you first, Tom. Sure, just a, just a small question, just to to kick us off. <laughs> um, and, and I should say, on, on, on that point of um, talking about multiple different countries, I'm sure we are going to annoy many Latin Americanists who are telling us that we are falling into the same traps as American policymakers would have, uh, seeing Latin America as this um, one great mass of countries that can be treated in the same way. We are, of course, very aware of the differences and the way in which is the whole series of bilateral relationships, but what is interesting in a way, what does give us a little bit of a pass is that so many American policymakers 
do tend to treat Latin America um, as one mass to be dealt with in the same way. Some broad generalizations, but I think we, we, we can allow ourselves a little bit of a pass on that. So thinking about, about US policy and broad sweeping policies. And certainly this point at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century is really crucial in terms of thinking about um, later relationships with within the Americas. And probably best classified, I'd say, maybe is the point at which really the United States begins to sort of flex uh, imperial muscle, if you say, um, and begins to um, take this position um, in which it is viewed by certainly many Latin Americans as, as trying to dominate really the hemisphere. Um, it's a point at which the U.S. is really emerging as an economic great power, um, and it's starting to go along with that to so expand its reach in terms of its navy, its trade links around the world. Um, and as the U.S. is kind of emerging onto the global scene, it's really throughout the Americas where it will kind of stamp its authority and make its mark in terms of establishing itself as a great power. Um, probably the most famous turning point within that would be the Spanish-American War. And what we've most commonly, certainly when we're teaching this, I'd say to, to all of our students, we point to the Spanish-American War. Um, and this is a point at which, I suppose, when we talk, you mentioned that in the, the Monroe Doctrine, that the idea had been that we won't be expelling Spain from any of its colonies, but neither do we want more intervention. This goes out the window at this point because the US is exactly that. They, there is um, a rebellion going on in Cuba, a Spanish-held colony, that we intervene, kick the Spanish out. And despite having declared that they are not undertaking this mission to take colonies of their own, to establish themselves as an empire, um, that is essentially what happens. They don't occupy Cuba as a colony, but they do establish a US military presence there. Um, and they certainly do take colonies elsewhere. Uh, the Philippines, which is another Spanish colony, is occupied by the United States. Um, ultimately, Puerto Rico, uh, Guam, are absorbed into the U.S. sphere of influence. And, and their um, dominance of Cuba is really established as well through uh, the Platt Amendment, which essentially says uh, that the U.S. has authority over the foreign policy of Cuba. So Cuban independence, the U.S. is not going to liberate the Cuban people. They've gone in and really put themselves in a position of authority over the Cuban um, this is why, tracing all, all the way back to this point, is why the U.S. still has a base at Guantanamo Bay that is established during this period, yeah. with the U.S. basically taking some territory for themselves. And really, this can be seen as a, the kicking off point at which the U.S. starts to establish itself um, as a dominant power, particularly in the Caribbean and among um, in Central America. Um, and this is a, a word I always struggle to pronounce, is that we have the Roosevelt Corollary. That follows. Oh, it's a horrid um, word to pronounce that. Horrible. I tried doing that in lectures. It's oh, it's, it's horrid. Always get it wrong. <laughs> you just, just, just push through it. You just push through it. <laughs> uh, but, but, but essentially, this is a, an, an addendum, if we like. That's, that's, that's the term. Um, to the Monroe Doctrine. And this basically says that the US has the right to intervene wherever and whenever it likes um, and act as an international police power within the Americas. As Tom kind of alluded to there, I think it just illustrates that the Monroe Doctrine is often presented as the kind of the you know the longest lasting of American foreign policy document uh, you know doctrines, but it's it's flexible. It changes over time, and it's I think it's very much contingent on American interests and American values and ideals at the time, rather than being you know kind of this noble, protective, oh we'll protect the hemisphere kind of thing. It's very much about protecting the United States as well, which I think the Roosevelt's corollary. Says it right. Uh, <laughs> exactly, you know, illustrates that point. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, there we have the you know the roots of the kind of modern American involvement uh, in in Latin America. Yeah, and it leads to actually just as a kind of like side issue, it leads to an important debate that takes place within Americans, or certainly within the elite levels of American society and American politics over this question of American imperialism, whether or not America, as a nation that is allegedly avowedly anti-colonial, should in fact engage in a colonial policy, uh, and you know, for example, in the, the election of 1900 between William Jennings Bryan, who we've talked about quite a few times, and William McKinley, uh, the the Democrats try to make imperialism a big election issue, 
but it kind of fails in the face of the economic arguments that are being made surrounding the election of 1900, the American recovery from the global depression of 1893, and the role that the Republican administration has had in all of this. So, but there's, you know, it leads to this involvement in, in Latin America leads to important kind of debates within the United States about America's place in the world. And thankfully, those debates were solved forever and have no. never troubled America again. But I, w- I want to move this along a, a, wee, a wee bit just so we can get start towards the 1960s. And, and the last, I, I mean, you can, one of, one of the major sort of developments maybe towards Latin America is what who, Herbert Hoover, he, one of the greatest presidents in American history, check out our podcast where I tell people that. Uh, no, he... Uh, he, he initiates the good neighbor policy, am I right in saying? And Franklin Roosevelt basically just adopts it. Now, it sounds warm and lovely and fuzzy. You know, we're going to be a good neighbor. Um, were they a good neighbor? And what does it mean? Um, yes, yeah, so I, I, you're exactly right that Herbert Hoover is the first to use this phrase, that the good neighbor. Um, I probably should get more credit for it than he does. But it is a policy which is it's inherently connected to Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, who cares? It's only Hoover. <laughs> well, I, I, no, that, that, that's not fair. But certainly, <laughs> FDR makes this about him as you know he's 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 a much better he's a much better showman than Hoover, right? He, he's good at establishing these kind of legacies, um, and it certainly becomes key to American policy under FDR. And, and, and essentially, what um, is it's a re, it's a renouncing of the Roosevelt corollary. Uh, which is um, say we no longer are saying that we have the right to intervene throughout the hemisphere. Um, the way FDR phrases it, he says that the neighbour who resolutely respects himself because he does so respects the rights of others. That is, we, we no longer have the right to go around intervening at will throughout the hemisphere. Um, beyond just that, that that's a, a non-intervention. It's also about increased economic, political cooperation. Um, and trying to improve relations from this point at which the US is seen as this the imperialist interventionist power to try and put um, things on a more cooperative basis. Now, that, that that's the, so the positive spin on it um, from a slightly more selfish point of view than the US point of view. Um, it serves US economic interests in that what Roosevelt really wants is, is easy access to uh, Latin American raw materials. Um, and increasingly, as we go throughout the 1930s, also to secure Latin American cooperation as um, tensions in Europe increase. There is a worry um, about fascist, about Nazi influence in the Americas, and Roosevelt is very keen on making sure the, the, the hemisphere is secure as we move into the late 1930s. Um, and from another perspective too, the idea of being this good neighbour, I mean, we, we cooperate with everybody, also means that you cooperate with some pretty unpleasant governments too. So... Um, places like the Dominican Republic, where we have a very repressive dictatorship under Rafael Trujillo, he's welcomed just as warmly as a nation with a more progressive government, such as Mexico, essentially. We're treating everybody the same. We'll work with everybody and have relations with everybody. And, and finally, to be even more, well, slightly more cynical about it, um, the good neighbour is only really a commitment not to do something. Right? There's certainly one, one of Johnson's employees in the State Department in the 60s says, uh, quite dismissively, he says Latin Americans love this and they loved FDR, but really, well, we we made a commitment not to intervene. We weren't actually promising to do anything. So, to be fair, there's yeah. probably quite a few people uh, that would observe some elements of American foreign policy and praise restraint. Oh, yeah. you know, well, like, well, yes, exactly. I'm, I'm trying to give trying to get both sides to it. Yeah. I think there is genuinely something admirable about the good neighbour, but you know, you, you don't want to get too carried away and say this is a, a complete revolution in in relations between. US and a neighbor. Okay, so we, we've got we've got the, the 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 calm waters of the good neighbor policy, and then in the post World War Two world, we obviously have the arrival of the Cold War, and the Cold War is a global Cold War, Malcolm, as you have made clear on this podcast many many times. So tell me a wee bit about how Latin America is affected by the beginnings of the Cold War. I'll, I'll keep this this brief. So I think it's important to bear in mind that the post-1945 world is becoming increasingly complex. We don't just see the onset of the Cold War in kind of 46, 47, 48. There's the process of decolonization, uh, these manifestly changing relations between what's called the Global South, so the formerly colonized nations of the world, Sub-Saharan Africa, huge swathes of Asia, and Latin America, 
they're changing relationship. What World War Two is uh, done is proven the the poverty of thinking of the empires of the, their way of treating the world, the way of doing their way of doing things. In many ways, Japanese victories in Asia proved that the white empires were no longer undefeatable and all that kind of thing. So we see this great upswing of uh, you know national independence movements and you know movements for reform and change and all that kind of thing throughout the world post-1945. But in 44, while the war is still ongoing, it's five Latin American states, Colombia, Costa Rica, Chile, Uruguay, and Mexico, are the ones that can call themselves democracies in a sense. Most of the rest are, you know, dictatorships or authoritarian, various other kind of kinds of kinds of rule. But post 45, you start seeing these democratizing forces. And by 46, it's only a couple of years later, it's only El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Paraguay, and the Dominican Republic, as Tom mentioned under Rafael Trujillo, uh, that continue to be ruled by dictators. So you've had like social democratic progressive movements gaining power, supported by unions, and importantly, for the American mindset in the onset of the Cold War, communist parties. Uh, so they were emboldened by kind of World War, you know, World War Two, and they do things. You know, these leaders do, and new parties do important things, like they make important contributions to the 1948 UN Declaration on Human Rights. You know, Latin American social democrats are heavily involved in that. So you've got all sorts of stuff going on with, you know, democratization and all of these kind of things, but there starts to become this American fear of communism in their backyard. And these kind of, the turn towards democracy is almost entirely reversed by about 1954. And not, I mean, not just because of the Cold War. I mean, I think Tom can you know, talk a bit more about the way in which America is involved in this, but you also have these authoritarians and conservatives who have been waiting in the wings. They've not been entirely removed from the picture in various countries and ready for their moment. And they take advantage of U.S. interest, couple it to anti-communism. And in some cases, the U.S. supports military coups that brings conservative liberal regimes to power uh, in a kind of more ephemeral way. And then sometimes there's direct involvement, like so Guatemala uh, and Jacobo Arbenz in 1954. So there's moments of democratization and then a return to a liberal, conservative, authoritarian, all sorts of different kinds of regimes, uh, military regimes in some cases. Sure. Uh, I, I would not disagree with any of that. I know that's, a, that's a fantastic summary. Um, one thing I think in, in terms of, again, keeping on this idea of, of the wider global context is that certainly uh, throughout the 1950s and in the Eisenhower administration there, is a growing fear about communist influence. But at the same time, in terms of global priorities, Latin America is not high on the list for the Eisenhower administration. Um, there is um, a sense of, I think, a, a complacency to, to, to a degree that this is still our sphere of influence. This is our backyard. Um, and obviously there have been um, great affairs in relation to like, so places like Southeast Asia with the Korean War, Europe is still seen as the really the key Cold War battleground. And you really see this, I think, at the end of World War II, when many of the, the Latin American nations had cooperated very closely with the US economically, supplying uh, raw materials at depressed prices, essentially, um, with the promise from the US that this would be rewarded in, in some way at the, at the end of the war. Now, in the World War II, or within the early days of the Cold War, when the US is announcing the Marshall Plan, many of these Latin American governments are expecting, well, they will get something similar. And they simply don't. There is, there is no real investment in terms of repaying any of that cooperation from the US during World War II, um, essentially because it's not seen as a priority on the same level as other parts of the world. Okay, and then I, I think that kind of complacency that comes with this sense of we will, uh, on the one hand, encourage other nations to just follow our model and allow our, our economic uh, intervention there. Um, and on the other hand, occasionally intervene militarily if, if there's a problem. The uh, punctured in 1958 when uh, Richard Nixon, who's vice president at the time, goes on what's supposed to be a goodwill tour of the Americas to improve relations. It's been an absolute disaster. Uh, everywhere he goes, uh, he's booed. There's anti-American chanting. Um, and ultimately, uh, when visiting Venezuela, his, his motorcade is attacked. Windows of the car are smashed. Um, he, he spat on. Uh, there's some amazing photographs you can see of just, just a crowd surrounding these cars. Um, 
And this really, this it takes this to bring home to the Eisenhower administration how unpopular the United States has become in the Americas. Um, and then when you add on to this, of course, the following year, Fidel Castro's victory in Cuba, uh, this really makes Latin America into a, a Cold War battleground from the US point of view. So, right, we're unpopular. We need to improve relations. Um, one nation has, as I would say, fallen to communism. Uh, we need to do something to prevent more following this path. Um, and, and that's really the point. That's a sort of 58, 59, which I think Latin America is really seeing now as a Cold War battleground. Brilliant. But, and, and, and into this marches the young, fresh, dynamic John F. Kennedy, um, who gives his famous inaugural speech in 1961. He makes a couple of lesser-known comments about ask not what your country can do for you and this generation you know, and bear any burden, pay any price. But what everyone really remembers about John F. Kennedy's inaugural is when he said, to our sister republic south of our border, we offer a special pledge to convert our good words into good deeds in a new alliance for progress, to assist free men and free governments in casting off the chains of poverty. And he went on for a wee while. Mm -hmm. So this vision what was termed the alliance for progress, um, how does it translate from great rhetoric into JFK's actual governing approach to Latin America, you know what was what was the alliance's goals and did they achieve them? Well, he, he certainly had a way with words, didn't he? In a way of, <laughs> way of phrasing things, and really quite a stark contrast to his predecessor as well. I think Eisenhower was the most inspirational speechmaker, um, and, and certainly, and I think that, that that context is really quite important as well because um, during the election campaign. Kennedy really seizes on Cuba as as a stick with which to beat uh, the Republicans, particularly as it's Richard Nixon who had seemingly um, participated in a symbolic act of everything that was wrong with U.S.-Latin American relations, who was Kennedy's opponent. Um, and throughout, uh, particularly the presidential uh, debates between Kennedy and Nixon, um, Kennedy really hammers on Cuba and basically accuses the Eisenhower administration um, of failing to recognize the kinds of changes in the Cold War that Malcolm was talking about earlier, this kind of new globalized Cold War. Um, and so basically their complacency means that we now have this um, this hostile power just off our shore. So Kennedy comes in really promising to do a lot in terms of Latin American policy, that he's going to change things. And this is a really, as, as you, you hinted at in terms of the kind of rhetoric, the kind of language Kennedy uses, this idea of great change. Um, of a kind of new broom sweeping in is crucial to Kennedy's, uh, the early months of Kennedy's presidency. And definitely the Alliance of Progress is, is crucial to this. His ringing phrase for what he wants his Latin American policy to be. But it's an important question. He asked, well, what does this actually look like? Because he first uses the phrase Alliance of Progress during the campaign. And he has no idea what this is going to be. It's just, it's, it's a good phrase. And it makes it sound like uh, the US will be working together with Latin American countries. And, you know, and progress is always a good word. Right, we're always going to progress somewhere. So it's really part of a of a broader recognition among the Kennedys, Kennedy administration that uh, the Cold War is now being fought in a whole range of different ways. And this is part of this idea that the Kennedy administration seizes on of right that you can use um, aid, technical assistance as a way of um, getting these countries who are maybe unaligned or at least not closely tied to the US. And if you modernize them, if you make them into these capitalist democracies in the model of the US, then they will be your ally. Right? You, they will no longer be vulnerable to communist um, influence. So the Alliance of Progress is essentially this idea of, of modernization um, put into practice. Now, in terms of how that's actually going to look, um, is is a bit more complicated. And um, of course, the two major goals then of the alliance are, on the one hand, uh, modernizing Latin America. We'll see, it could be quite complicated. Um, and at the same time, no more Cubas. Right? This is the other fundamental point that this is all about trying to make sure Latin America is secure from having any more Cubas. In practical terms, uh, the basic idea of the alliance is that it will be this huge cooperative aid program. The US will provide a lot of the funds, but other uh, countries of the Americas will provide funds too. Um, and that it will provide tailored aid and assistance and technical assistance and investment into countries where it is needed 
and we will modernize Latin America. Now, in terms of its goals, just to give you a sense of how ambitious some of these goals are when they're finally announced uh, at a conference in, in Uruguay in 1961, um, is the reform of land ownership and tax systems in countries, um, rapidly increasing economic uh, growth through that, and they set specific targets for this. Um, they say the U.S. will provide around $20 billion in funding um, over the next decade. They want to increase life expectancy. They want to halve the infant mortality rate. They want to eliminate adult illiteracy, provide access to education for all children, um, and encourage democratic political reform. So hugely ambitious goals, and the problem is they're quite a lot vaguer about how they'll actually achieve them. And so, I mean, it's interesting that kind of you know, modernization theory, you know, coming from the likes of like Walt W. Rostow and all these kind of guys becomes one of the defining features of kind of the American engagement, foreign policy engagement of the world. I mean, they try to apply it to all sorts of different places. You see it in, you know, in Latin America, in Iran, in Africa, in, you know, South Asia and all of these kind of things. Yeah. And so it's, it's all over the place. But I mean, thinking specifically about Latin America, this kind of, yeah, ephemerally defined and kind of like slightly essentialized area. What are the what are the successes and failures of the kind of the Kennedy era approach by the time you get to his death in November nineteen sixty three? Um, it, 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 it's tough to say in, that, in in terms of of successes. I mean, it, um, to be generous, you can say you know a, a program this bold and, and this grand uh, is going to take a long time to get going. Right. The, the, the idea is that this is this is a long term program, at least initially, the idea is that this is goals for the whole decade. This, this will take a long time to get here. Um, and certainly it, it, we do see an increase in the amount of aid being sent, sent to Latin America and an increase in the attention being given to Latin America. But there's a whole range of problems going on, too. Um, on the one hand, there's massive organizational problems. And this is what, what, what I was hinting at in that, that last point is that less thought is really given to how this will actually function on a day-to-day sort of -day practical level. For a long time in, in Kennedy's um, administration, no one really knows who's in charge of the Alliance of Progress. Is it the titular head of the Alliance? Is it the Assistant Secretary of State for Latin America? Is it the head of USAID, who in theory is in charge of all USA programs? No one really knows and no one is really kind of taking, uh, taking the wheel. Of course, it's also hugely complex because it's dealing with all these different countries with, with, with different needs. And again, no one really knows how, how to organize this properly. Um, and probably even more importantly, that tension between, in some ways, quite an admirable desire to, to improve nations as the US planners see it, and this desperate desire to make sure that there's no more Cubans and you combat communist uh, infiltration um, often comes into conflict. And usually, um, Kennedy and his advisors will end up choosing um, the safer option with less risks than they will to really support you know, progress and modernization. So uh, to give some examples, um, in Brazil, it's quite quickly decided that they don't very much like the president there. They suspect President Algulat of being uh, communist influenced. So the, the aid from the Alliance of Progress, they essentially stopped giving it directly to the central government in Brazil, giving it to uh, the more conservative governors throughout Brazil, um, who they think are more in line with the real goals of the Alliance of Progress. And that, of course, undermines the president of Brazil to the point at which there's a coup in 1964. Um, similarly, after, after there's a coup in the Dominican Republic, um, Kennedy apparently says in private, look, we have these three goals. Sorry, three three preferences about the sorts of governments we'll work with. The top is a is a progressive democratic government. The next one down is you know an authoritarian right wing government that's non communist, and the worst, the last on the list is a a communist government. And we'll always take the second before we risk any chance of getting that last one. So quite often you see this kind of fall back to um, this quite conservative approach to, to allying with anyone who is not communist. And, and, and these things all kind of come together, this lack of organization, the struggles in getting funding out, uh, they, they, they're not hitting growth targets or problems where no one really knows how to encourage democratic growth. Um, so by the time, actually, of, of Kennedy's death, he's looking at ways of changing the alliance. He's considering creating a position of um, undersecretary of state for Latin America, who would control all of Latin American programs. There's already been a shift where he's he's a bit more been a bit more open about acknowledging the need for more private investment, 
of, of, about this potential for working with military governments. So I think by the time um, of Kennedy's death, he is starting to think maybe we're a bit too ambitious. Maybe we should scale back some of our ambitions. So given the fact that you've just painted a picture of somewhat glorious failure, um, and someone who's Scottish is familiar with that phrase, um, <laughs> You you make this you make the argument in in the excellent article you wrote on uh, on Thomas Mann being reconsidered in diplomatic history. You make the argument that that basically that John the Lyndon Johnson who obviously follows John F Kennedy has been blamed uh, for the collapse of the Alliance for Progress, um, largely because of myth like sort of the JFK myth makers, the sort of Arthur Schlesinger's of of this world. I mean, from what you described to me, it doesn't really sound like there's much to collapse. Um, so so what is it they accuse, before we get on to really Johnson's policies himself, what is it they accuse of Johnson of ruining uh, in this regard? What, what, what part of Camelot's palace has he destroyed? <laughs> well, so the, the, essentially the, the argument of that sort of, that sort of Camelot school um, would be that Yes, the alliance was, was was struggling and it wasn't really hitting its full targets, but that it, it, it would take time. And that, um, as, as Arthur Schlesinger puts it, he says, um, essentially, it was never really tried. He says it lasted around a thousand days. Um, and after that, it, it, it died, essentially. He accuses Johnson um, and Mann, who, who I'm sure we'll, we'll come to in a bit more detail, of, he says, they eviscerate the alliance. They take out its heart and they reduce it to this program that simply is about furthering U.S. economic interests um, and, and loses any of the kind of the, the ambitious um, and, and inspirational elements to it. And, and I suppose, I mean, in terms of style, you know, you, you can see their point in the sense of Johnson doesn't have that same sort of turn of phrase that Kennedy can have. He doesn't have those ringing phrases um, about this vast cooperative effort and this, this, this magnitude that's never before seen. Um, but but I do think that that has has masked that I, that, that idea that, that you pointed very clearly there that the alliance is struggling by the time Kennedy leaves office, and also as so we can talk about it in a bit more detail that my, my my argument would be that Johnson actually largely continues most of what Kennedy is doing, and actually most of his changes that he might implement are about trying to get the alliance functioning, trying to keep it going, and trying to make something um, of it when really it is really struggling to achieve anything at all. So. He really provided a kind of easy target, and we'll talk about man a little bit because he provides an even easier target um, to give an easy explanation for why the alliance fails. Well, Johnson comes in, the alliance dies. We'll never know whether it would have worked, um, and I think it, it does provide quite an easy out for people who would like to excuse uh, Kennedy and, and blame Johnson for all the problems. So, I mean, but it's, I mean, it's interesting because Johnson's kind of you. Know... Foreign policy legacy and, the, and certainly in the public memory is almost entirely wrapped up in the escalation of the Vietnam War, and you know frequently seen as you know being you know a, a great domestic politician you know a great, you know described in one of the, you know, the biographies master of the Senate in his his previous career prior to being vice president and president and all that kind of thing, but largely a bit clueless when it comes to foreign relations and I'd, I'd argue slightly against that from my own research because. I think he has, his administration has a lot to recommend it in terms of their uh, support for a negotiation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, you know, which comes in in 1968. But largely he's seen as this kind of like, you know, clueless figure, rubbish at foreign policy. And does, is this a fair characterization? And is, does, is this reflected in his approach to Latin America? You know, thinking about maybe perhaps it was intervention in the Dominican Republic in 1965. Sure. This uh, the, the the king of the river and stranger to the open seas idea, right? That, 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 the That's right. the guy. But one way of thinking about Johnson does is to one thing I, I do, and I'm writing about this is to try to separate a little bit out you know, the alliance of progress on one hand, and then other policies or security policy on the other, because essentially, you no know, intervening in the Dominican Republic is related to the alliance of progress, but it's not directly tied to it. The, the alliance is not the entirety of his land. And just talking about the alliance, this is somewhere I think really his performance is, is much better than he's been given credit for. Johnson really emphasizes um, Latin American integration. He encourages common markets. Uh, and he wants to kind of have this new vision of the alliance. Now, it doesn't quite work out. Um, 
But certainly, I think he's more dedicated to the Alliance than he's been given credit for. At the same time, something like the Dominican Republic intervention does give us uh, plenty of evidence to support the idea that he was not particularly skilled at foreign policy. So for, for people who, who are familiar with it, it's not a particularly um, famous event, I don't think, certainly in comparison to something like Vietnam. Um, but the Dominican Republic intervention occurs um, in the spring of 1965, when there is essentially a civil war in uh, the Dominican Republic, a small Caribbean nation, um, in which you have sort of conservative uh, military-backed government, um, and there is a rebellion by younger army officers, students, um, citizens who want to reinstate a deposed president. And we essentially get the civil war between the sort of more conservative elements who want to keep their power, the people who have to reinstate uh, Juan Bosch, this, uh, this former president. Initially, Johnson is happy to leave it and kind of see how it plays out. And he thinks the, the, the military will win. And then there's a point at which uh, the Dominican military come to him and say, we are going to lose and our opponents are communists backed by Cuba and this will be another Cuba. And also his ambassador in the Dominican Republic tells him, yeah, this is going to happen. And you're right, you need to intervene. And Johnson ends up sending troops in, intervening in this conflict. Um, and essentially uh, doesn't take sides in the sense that he doesn't join, the American forces don't join in the fighting, but they put a stop to the civil war and ultimately end up backing more of the conservative. So while I certainly don't want to argue that Johnson was a wonderful foreign policy leader, greatly skilled, it's certainly much more of a mixed bag than this very simplistic characterization that we might have before. So I went on a bit there, but that is, that's kind of a, trying to put it in something of a nutshell. Um, no, that was, that. that was brilliant. Thank you. Um, and given you just stressed all the sort of the importance like Johnson's advisors played, uh, let, let's move on to. I was going to say your man, but that's just uh, let's move on. To, let's move on to Thomas Mann, uh, who was often about it for that long. It, feel, it, it kind of feels that way. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he was often referred to as LBJ's man in Latin America. So yeah. clearly, they appreciated puns in the sixties too. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know you said uh, before we recorded this that you could literally talk about uh, Thomas Mann for hours, yeah. if not days, I think you said, but uh, I'll try, try and restrict you to a minute or so. Okay. Uh, I mean, who, who was Thomas Mann and uh, what qualified him for the job of LBJ's man in Latin America? Okay, so uh, Thomas Mann had been uh, a State Department employee and working in the Foreign Service since World War II. Uh, he was another Texan, uh, a lawyer. And he essentially served in various diplomatic postings throughout uh, the 1950s and then had been in Washington at the end of Eisenhower's administration. He'd been someone who'd been very prominent in trying to encourage a great degree of, of, of U.S. engagement with Latin America, increased aid. Um, and then when Kennedy got entered office, he'd appointed Mann as his ambassador to Mexico, um, which, as, as I mentioned earlier, was when he helped to negotiate the Chamizal uh, border agreement. And have been a pretty successful ambassador. And essentially, when Johnson enters office, Johnson decides pretty quickly that the alliance is struggling in organizational terms and he wants someone who's experienced, who knows Latin America. Um, and I'm sorry it doesn't help, it doesn't sorry, it doesn't hurt that man is a Texan too. So this is who Johnson brings back from Mexico and appoints as his assistant secretary of state for Latin America, refers to him as my Mr. Latin America or my jefe for Latin America in a very Johnson turn of phrase. Um, <laughs> and it's not an appointment that is widely welcomed, as we, we, we can maybe talk about, but so I think Johnson looks at him as one who's very experienced, knows the region. I was saying as a fellow Texan, when Johnson find, often thinks himself as surrounded by these Harvards, I think there is an appeal in man being a fellow Texan too. Sure. And I mean, in your article, you argue that that man has been, he's also been un- misunderstood, you know, as a, as a sort of Johnson Texan crony. And he was remembered for saying, I think he had a quote you said saying, I know my Latinos, they understand only a dollar in the pocket and a, and a kick in the ass. Yep. Um, so, I mean, why, why is he misunderstood? And, and you know, what, what does he, what did he actually accomplish in the Johnson administration? You know, why, why do you want to shine a spotlight on Thomas Mann? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a, a couple of things, and I think uh, on the one hand, it's it's because he he became such a lightning rod for um, a lot of the transition issues between the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Um, 
essentially some of the the people who are very close to Kennedy, uh, Sorensen after Schlesinger, of course Robert Kennedy, decide that um, the appointment of Mann is symbolic of Johnson's ending of the alliance. They argue that because uh, Latin America had been so important to, to President Kennedy, um, that it should be one of them who, who, who decides who wins it. And obviously, Johnson is the president now, so Johnson decides that. Um, so Mann, kind of from this starting point, has really been taken as the clearest evidence that, that, that Johnson abandons the alliance. And that real, the real evidence that is often pointed to is what becomes known as the Mann Doctrine. And this is essentially um, in early 1964, when um, a gathering of U.S. ambassadors to Latin America while they're back in Washington, Mann delivers a speech where he kind of outlines what he thinks American policy should be. This is leaked. Um, and it's leaked to the New York Times, who, who published this and say, basically, the U.S. is abandoning the promotion of democracy. And it's just going back to kind of old style economic interests and working with dictators. Now, the accuracy of that report has been debated for years. But essentially, I think that this idea that man is symbolic of this abandoning of the alliance has been overstated. That in terms of his achievements, man does what Johnson wants him to do, which is he wants him to get things more organized, get things functioning more efficiently. Statistically, the Alliance of Progress improves a lot under Thomas Mann. Uh, aid is dispersed more rapidly. Uh, more is built um, in terms of just whether it's building roads or schools. Kind of statistically, things get better. But he, he gets the Alliance on, on a more stable footing and, and, and basically fulfills the role that Kennedy had in mind of being that of the Secretary of State for Latin America. Now, he doesn't do so well during the Dominican Republic intervention. He handles other crises better, for example, in Panama, where he encourages Johnson to not overreact, to not see a, a problem there as being all about international communism and basically negotiate or start the negotiations towards a new Panama Canal contract. So essentially, I think he's a much more moderate figure than he's, than he's portrayed as. And that portrayal of him has distorted how we understand Johnson's handling of Latin American policy. So kind of unpicking this portrayal of man allows us to better understand what is happening under Johnson too. So if I can pose rather a, perhaps a slightly uh, perplexing and challenging question. So uh, here we go. So H.W. Brands, uh, he argues that, and a fairly lengthy quote coming up, uh, okay. global disruptions of the late 1960s and 1970s fostered a Latin American challenge to US and Western hegemony in economic relations. With Latin America, the major international events of this period were widely interpreted as representing a decline in U.S. and Western power and the corresponding ascendancy of the third world. And when we kind of take into account you know, the Johnson administration and their relationship with Latin America, to what extent, this is a slightly essay question-esque, to what extent... hate to be in one of your yeah. modules, buddy. Yeah, no. That's a tough so, question. <laughs> but to what, to what extent do you think that analysis is, is correct? Mm. Um, wow. Um, so for, for one point, I think that this is going to slightly re reveal what I talked about earlier, whereas that um, I would say I focus more on, on the U.S. perspective than being a Latin Americanist, so I could tell you exactly what is going on in, in Latin America. Um, and to an extent, I also th I think he's also picking it up a little bit where I leave off. But what I can add, or what, what, where I think that is relevant um, to my own research, um, it's, I think part of his argument is that this means that Latin American countries uh, turn inwards to a degree, start to seek arrangements that are less reliant on the U.S. and start to turn away from the U.S. as it was AC as a struggling and as a declining power. Um, and to an extent, I think this, this is true. And what I think is interesting in, in what I find in my research is this is something that really Johnson encourages to a degree. Um, his great effort near the end of his presidency is to try and encourage Latin American nations towards greater economic integration, towards common markets, um, towards a system where this will be assisted by the US and it will be uh, helped out a little bit, but essentially it's going to be a, a self-sustaining system that doesn't rely on US aid. Um, and in that sense, I think you know, he would be, be quite happy to, to have a system whereby the Latin Americans are less um, reliant on US aid for their development. At the same time, um, I think there is there is clear evidence of this of, of more hostility to this in the sense that um, Johnson's efforts to try and get this sort of new look alliance off the ground are really hampered by 
funding cuts for Congress. And in particular, Johnson's last foreign aid bill is absolutely uh, slashed by Congress. And within the administration, they, they, talk, they, they highlight that actually funding for Latin America has been particularly targeted by Congress and really has been cut. And what's interesting is that the reaction throughout much of Latin America is that, well, the US Congress has basically just chosen Vietnam over the Alliance of Progress. And this is kind of an end to the alliance in that sense. So Vietnam is what has, has brought down the alliance that way. Now, I think it's more complicated than that, but certainly there is a real frustration that US commitments elsewhere in the world being dragged into this war um, have undermined any real chance for the alliance to function properly. Um, so finally, Tom, uh, mm-hmm. uh, very, very keen to discuss with you LBJ's barbecue diplomacy since uh, a talk I seen you deliver a few years ago that I really enjoyed, a couple of years ago. Um, and I thought it was really a perfect illustration of the, the shift from JFK's urbane, sophisticated, glamorous, white tie, White House, um, to Johnson's more, shall we say, earthy, um, <laughs> yet, yet in some ways equally grand approach. Could you maybe tell us a wee bit about the, I believe it was the West German Premier's visit to the Texas ranch? Yeah, so th- th- this is sort of where I suppose my, my, my new research interests and this and this class project um, intersect is, um, and, and really what got me started on this path is I'm fascinated by his diplomacy when he had does this, uh, it's got barbecue diplomacy, um, or what's sometimes referred to as statesman and statesmanship by uh, some of the press, uh, which is that Johnson's first hosting of a major foreign leader uh, is a German, a West German Chancellor, Ludwig Erhard, um, in December 1963. Um, so just a, a month or so after he's, he's, he's taken office. And he decides that this is he's going to host Erhard at the ranch in Texas. Um, and it's going to be a full Texan celebration. So that the state dinner um, is uh, barbecue, beer. It's in a, a nearby high school gymnasium that's decorated with bales of hay. There are um, local school choirs who are singing uh, Texan songs, but translated into German. There's a lot of emphasis on the, the connections between German immigrants in Texas um, and Germany. Um, and it's this great sort of celebration of, of Germany and, and all things Texan. It kind of culminates in these amazing pictures of Johnson uh, sizing Erhard up for a, a Stetson hat. Um, Erhard looks slightly jolly at this point. He's got a cigar in one hand. He's often got a drink in the other. Looks like great fun. Um, <laughs> but this is, is this is Johnson's first hosting of a major foreign leader. So I, I think it's it's really quite interesting and, and important. I have. I have many thoughts about, about why he does this, but I think in particular it comes back to something that we've been touching on a little bit, which is about this idea of this transition from Kennedy to Johnson, that Johnson has been, is largely sidelined in the Kennedy administration. Uh, he doesn't have much input. He's belittled by uh, what he sees as these sort of overeducated, overconfident young Harvards, as he refers to them. And really what, what he gets to do here is say, well, now Lyndon Johnson is president. Now this is this is how Lyndon Johnson conducts his diplomacy. And, and having said that, I do think he also pays careful attention to his the person he's hosting, and this really works for Erhard and really strengthens their relationship. But in terms of that idea of personal diplomacy and how important that individual is, this is a really clear example. And as well, I think it's a very deliberate contrast to the much more glamorous, in some ways more formal style of, of Kennedy state dinners. This is pure Johnson. Pure Texas. So that the yes, the most intellectual final question we've ever asked the guest, Tom. Yeah, I'm, I'm this is this is a big one. I've got a really big quote lined up for you, bigger than Malcolm's. I would be remiss if I, remiss if I didn't ask you about monkeys and sheepdogs. Discuss <laughs> monkeys, sheepdogs, and the presidency of Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> the title writes itself. Okay, um, so essentially, one of the uh, great. Uh, pleasures of researching presidential hosting and campaigning and these sort of diplomatic events is really digging into the social files where you get the lists of, of entertainment that's provided um, and the kinds of things that, that they'll put on for guests. And Johnson would often host at the ranch and he often uh, tended to host uh, Latin American visitors at the ranch, actually. He, he felt that that was particularly uh, appropriate in a more in a less formal setting. He felt that was effective. 
But one thing that really stood out, or one event that really stood out, is that in uh, 1964, he hosted Mexican president-elect, uh, Diaz Ordaz. And um, for the entertainment, he organizes, on the one hand, uh, a very famous singer, Eddie Fisher, and, and, and as often would be the case when you have state visits. Um, but the, the the real climax of, of the entertainment, uh, and I, I can quote directly from the <laughs> from the document here, is a sheepdog demonstration that is climaxed by the cowboy-clad monkey riding a dog herding the sheep. <laughs> now, if you if you want a, a real image to encapsulate um, the contrast, I think, in some ways between Johnson's presidency and the more sort of glamorous. Uh, white tied in into the Kennedy era. It's uh, a monkey dressed as a cowboy riding a sheepdog. I, I don't think you can really do any better than that. Do you know it's one of those things that you don't actually need a picture for? Like I've got, it in, I've got it in my mind now. <laughs> and I, I must, I must say that Tom, if you ever write an overarching history of American foreign policy, it needs to be titled "A Monkey on a Dog Herding Sheep." <laughs> that I needs think, to be the I, title I of it. I think I might use that, you know. I, I think you've just given me inspiration. I can think of no better place to end than on this ridiculous image of Lyndon Johnson's uh, attempts at uh, presidential monkey-related diplomacy. Me, uh, me neither. I think, I think we're just going to have to leave it there. Well, upon that rather unexpected note of uh, animal-related uh, presidential diplomacy. I think uh, we're only left to say thank you very much, Tom, for a fascinating discussion of a huge range of issues to do with the US involvement in Latin America. Hopefully we've not essentialized an entire continent too much. But, I mean, thank you for bringing your expertise onto the podcast. I certainly learned a lot. It was fascinating. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me on. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I think we, we did our best um and I, I don't think we went too far on hopefully hopefully not uh well thank you thank you again and next time uh we're going to be discussing uh the japanese american experience this time we'll have two guests so there'll be four of us uh talking uh, about this issue and i'm sure it'll be a very lively discussion about the japanese american experience so until then mark thank you again a pleasure as always thank you and thank you tom and thank you to all our listeners goodbye goodbye bye The border down Mexico way. That's where I fell in love when the stars above came out and play. And now, as I wander, my thoughts ever stray south of. A picture in old Spanish play, and for a tender while I kissed the smile upon her face, for it was Fiesta, and we were so gay, south of the border. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.